I'm Dick Moberg, and for more than 40 years, I've been developing technology to advance our understanding of the injured brain. I've had a chance to work with some of the leading minds in the field of neuromonitoring, including physicians, researchers, and entrepreneurs. I want to share their stories with you in the form of a weekly podcast so you can stay current on the latest developments in the field and the innovative people behind them. This is my neural network. Hi, I'm Dick Moberg, and our topic today is emerging from coma, and our guests are very special to me. In February of 2018, my best friend Sheila was hit by a car and knocked unconscious with a severe traumatic brain injury. She was taken to Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. I was at her bedside almost every day wondering what was going on inside her head. Her recovery, now two years later, has been remarkable, and Sheila is with us today. A very special welcome to you. Thank you very much, Dick. One of her doctors, Dr. Indira DeJesus, was the director of neurocritical care at Einstein, and during the course of Sheila's hospital stay, we became very good friends. Indira is also with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Dick. It's a pleasure for me to be here. And we also have Rick Modulin, Sheila's brother who was with her, I think, almost every day during her three months in Einstein's ICU. And we're looking forward to hearing this story from the perspective of a family member. Welcome, Rick. Thank you for having me. And we also have Dr. Claude Hempel, professor of neurology at the UCSF Weill Institute of Neurosciences and past president of the Neurocritical Care Society. Dr. Hempel is going to tell us about an exciting new project called Curing Coma. Claude, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So let's start with me providing some background on Sheila. Uh, She was a longtime bartender at a popular bar in Philly, and the money she made there went into a nonprofit she founded. Philly, like many large cities, can be a challenging place to grow up, especially if you live in an underserved neighborhood. Sheila turned around one of these neighborhoods by opening her house in the afternoons to kids to teach them art. She was and is loved by many in this city, and when the news of her accident broke, All three TV channels covered it that evening. So let's go back to those first few days. Sheila was brought to Einstein without any ID, and that night and most of the next day, no one knew who she was. She was recognized by a nurse who knew her from the bar, and friends and family were then contacted. Everyone close to her remembers where they were when we got the news. I was in Germany, coincidentally, at a neurocritical care conference, and Rick was here in Philly. So, Rick, tell us what it was like in those first few days uh, right after you saw her in the hospital. It was daunting. Every day was unexpected. So from the first moment you hear that someone's had an accident to the time when you speak with doctors, you're unsure of what is going on and what's happening. You're very confused. You're, You're lost in a space that You don't know if they're going to last an hour or they're going to survive. It's a a hard space to be in. You You just deal with that moment. Every moment that you are faced with is a new moment that you deal with that moment the best you can. I dealt with some moments better than others. I think that was about day three. Sheila, there was no response. There was no, she had tubes coming out of everywhere. There was no assurance of where the recovery would go or how the outcomes would be. 
I've talked to many people about this. They came to us and they asked us if we wanted to basically, uh, I'll make the story as short as I can, basically like, would you pull the plug? And I immediately spoke up and said, no, we would take her back in any way, shape or form. It doesn't matter. We'll, we want her back. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that was the doctors asking what the family's resolve was. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a standard practice. I don't know if they thought that really she had no chance of recovery. I think, I think they're as lost as the rest of us, to be honest. So I, I think that they thought this is a worst case scenario. And they were trying to save us from that inevitable, you know what I mean? Like, maybe we should have done this sooner. That I don't know. The only thing I do know is that it was a knee-jerk reaction. It was not a, it was not something I thought about. And believe me, if I put down on words what I would have done with my life, I would not want to be resuscitated. I would have chosen to just pull the plug on myself. So I don't know what Sheila would have done. She didn't have a will. She didn't have those words put down. But when I was faced with that decision, it didn't take me a half a second but to come up with, no, that is not an option. Well, clearly you made the right decision, and we're all grateful for that. So thank you. And I remember all the uncertainty uh, back in those early days. Uh, I, I know the prognosis is difficult in the early stage of head injury. And Indira, maybe you can comment on Sheila's case. She woke up relatively quick from her coma. She was admitted February 8th. And on February 22nd and is when she actually opened her eyes and started paying attention to her examiners, and she even follows simple commands. Um, so I wonder if that could be one of our clues on who is going to, who has that desire of keep going, right? Who, which patient, and independently of the type of injury, independently you had to be decompressed, independently of how bad the imaging looks, and they have that chance of wanting to keep going uh, with the recovery process. Yes. So do you think if you talk to family members and they gave you an idea of what the personality of this patient was, do you think that could be a factor? I mean, everybody would tell you that she was somebody that's, you know, has more determination and passion for life than anyone on the planet. And if you knew that ahead of time, maybe, Maybe that could help. Uh, I mean, there's got to be something in her that has that, you know, that desire to survive and live the fullest. And, and maybe that's something. When we look at a phenotype of patient, maybe maybe that's a predictor. I don't, I don't know. I, I have to say, you're making a lot of sense. and Which rarely happens. But, definitely. you know, thank you. That's good. Happens most of the time. <laughs> it definitely fits with this, I think. Sheila, can you tell us, um, I know memory is one thing that, that is affected. What are some of the earliest things that you remember? And can you just give us some idea what this was like? 
I was out most of the first year, I'd say, most of the nine months. It felt like I never knew anything. It came without me really understanding what was going on. I just was under. When I was in my coma, I, I honestly, there were incidences that happened, at least I thought they did, and or I relived stuff, but it might have been my dreaming. I know that at one point I dreamed I had a place on South Street and I had you coming to a breakfast that I had put together. <laughs> so I remember thinking of you, Dick, and also thinking where I would get items but mm. what store I would go to get yeah. them and mm. I remember coordinating some of that stuff I remember driving myself in a vehicle too it, it was like my old car but I never really drove it it was there were many pictures like that in my mind about things that happened or that I dreamed happened and they didn't really happen. Or it was me recounting or reliving little aspects of my life, I, I guess. A lot of the stuff that I remember, <laughs> I was glad that um, I had my imagination running wild with me in a lot of ways. It was way better than being um, coherent or knowing that I was bored with the situation or I had to be in hospital and I didn't necessarily want to be there. Sheila, I'm, uh, I'm always excited when I'm in your dreams, uh, whether you're in a coma or not. Um, but what you said sort of makes you wonder if, uh, you know, normally when you wake up, uh, that's what stops your dream and you come back to reality. And, and maybe when you're still somewhat in a coma, you don't have that sharp line between dreams and reality. Uh, or maybe this was some kind of safe space for your brain. I, I, don't, I don't know. There's, there's so much we don't know. Sheila, Rick, you had another tragedy in your family that year. Your sister, Rini, who I knew very well, flew into town to visit. I spent a few hours with her that afternoon in Sheila's room, just the three of us. Then I flew to a meeting in Las Vegas. The next morning, I got a call from you, Rick, saying they found Rini unconscious from a ruptured aneurysm. By the end of the day, she was dead. The family was crushed. It yeah. was unexpected. It was so sudden. Uh, there was no, no warning signs. There, you know, it just happened. And it was uh, a difficult time. There was no doubt. Totally. Um, you're you're going to a funeral with one sister, with the other one in a hospital with a, a yeah. you know with a head injury and a, um, very difficult times um, for that. My brother told me a story about when he went to visit my sister Rini, but my brother said, Sheila, do you remember I came to you that night when Rini was about to die? It was the last day I got to see her. And I said, no, I don't recall that at all, Rick. And he said, Sheila, 
I walked in the room and you grabbed my arm and said, what happened to Beanie? You said that? I oh my did. God. Oh my God. I did, wow. but I don't recall wow. that at all. Wow. Yeah, you know, I remember you were still pretty much out of it when Reenie visited. Uh, the two of us talked for a few hours while you slept. That I, I just know that I probably felt certain things. I didn't recall that Reenie did pass away when I was in the hospital. It came to me later that I realized it. Everybody kind of explained it to me, but I, I didn't know. Yeah, I remember. None of us thought it was a good idea to tell you Reenie died since the two of you were so close. Your family told you about it when you were in the nursing home. I think it was four or five months later. You know, none of us had any idea what you could comprehend during those first few months. But clearly, it was better than what we thought. So let's go back to Indira. Um, can you tell us a bit more about uh, evaluating patients and um, in particular about uh, Sheila's hospital course? We want to know how educated that, patient, that person was, definitely personality and having high energy Mm -hmm. as we will describe you, and passion for life, definitely. What if you think about a person that was depressed and didn't want to deal with life in general, right? And right. So right. so maybe, maybe that's, it's, it's something that we should take in consideration. And when we are evaluating and trying to prognosticate long-term um, uh, outcome for this type of patient, I agree. I do. One of my goals would be to relate to the patients and keep going back with that advice that the most important thing you can do is the attitudes you take on. Yeah, something yeah. that amazes me, it's, it's how well Sheila speaks and her vocabulary and... Yeah. And obviously, English is not my first language. So uh, I can appreciate that you have all these fancy words that you still still remember yes. um, from before your injury. And you are very eloquent. And you have a lot of words and as part of that vocabulary. Yes. And, and Sheila has shown me as I has been able to witness her recovery from waking up until now and that she has progressed and get better and better, not only motor-wise, her right side is getting better and she's almost ambulating with minimal assistance, also her, her language abilities. Mm -hmm. and, and that has exceeded the one year post-injury, like, her injury was February 8th, 2018. And I feel like you were kind of not remembering much, maybe some minimal interaction for almost a year in and yes. out of the hospital with, yes, um, you develop seizures after your injury. So we had to treat the seizures, which is a complication from traumatic brain injury. You develop hydrocephalus. Uh, hygromas that had to be treated, infections that had to be treated. And, and that's very important when we are trying to uh, take care of tra severe traumatic brain injury patients to 
acknowledge that it's possible that the first year after your injury, you are having all these complications. You require more interventions and, and that we cannot give a definite, a definite prognosis long-term yes. and until at least one year yes. after your initial injury. Well, thanks, Indira. I think it's obvious that we don't know much about the brain in coma nor about the process of emerging from coma. It seems we know how to treat the body, uh, like managing blood pressure, but it seems there's still a lot of questions with how we should manage the brain in this process. And that leads to our next guest. So, Claude, can you tell us about the Curing Coma campaign? Sure. The Curing Coma campaign is uh, the name of the Neurocritical Care Society's new research initiative, taking on a grand challenge. We spent about two years of strategic planning thinking about how the Neurocritical Care Society could tackle the most important problems in neurocritical care that really remain unsolved. And I think what we recognize is that while we've had some really fantastic new treatments for diseases such as large uh, uh, vessel ischemic stroke, we still lack some of the uh, some fundamental treatments for diseases that really vex us, such as traumatic brain injury and intracerebral hemorrhage and even subarachnoid hemorrhage with delayed cerebral ischemia. When we took a step back and thought about the theme across all of these, we really recognized that the most daunting and common challenge in neurocritical care is the patient with altered consciousness, specifically the patient with severely altered consciousness. What do we get asked? We get asked by family, we get asked by other physician and nursing providers appropriately, are they going to wake up? And if they're going to wake up, are they going to be able to talk to us? Are they going to be able to interact? And this really crosses all of these different diseases. So as we think about the way folks have been treated before, most of the attempts to improve these patients have understandably focused principally on separate treatment of the specific type of a brain injury or dysfunction, such as treating intracerebral hemorrhage with blood pressure lowering or clot evacuation, treating traumatic brain injury by managing intracranial pressure or now brain tissue oxygen tension. But really one of the big questions is, is there a common theme that relates to problems with consciousness that we can really tackle as a grand challenge as a society and as a field of neurocritical care in order to fundamentally move the bar in our ability to understand what is the mechanism of decreased consciousness, especially coma, and what's the prognosis, who has brain injury that is potentially reversible or treatable, and really finally, how can we bring new treatments that can improve that consciousness and improve the trajectory of our patients uh, towards that improved consciousness. We sort of see this as as analogous to a moonshot. You know, we talk about the moonshot as an example of a great success where a lot of different folks came together. Uh, you know, we like to say that, that uh, um, uh, the uh, mission that put a man on the moon, there were three astronauts, but there were at least 400,000 people that were involved in some fashion. So we recognize that this is a grand challenge 
and that it's really going to be something that's probably going to take a significant amount of effort and time over time. Uh, but that's okay because it's worth it. Um, uh, we like there's interesting interesting quotes from from JFK that we were looking at as we were designing the curing coma campaign. And Kennedy said in '62, we chose to go to the moon and do the other things not because they're easy, but because they're hard, because it will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. And it's a challenge we're unwilling to postpone and one we intend to win. And that's the way we feel. I think another great story that has inspired us as we uh, are now reaching out broadly for folks to participate in the Curing Coma campaign is a story about President Kennedy when he was preparing for another speech about Apollo and he was visiting NASA and he took a wrong turn and he ran into a janitor who was cleaning his mop. And President Kennedy asked the janitor, uh, tell me, what do you do here? And the janitor turned to him and said, oh, Mr. President, uh, I'm putting a man on the moon before rushing off to continue his work. And I think that's really the attitude that we want to engender through the Curing Coma campaign. So we see the Curing Coma campaign as having kind of two big arms to it. One is obviously the scientific arm, which is going to take a revisiting and really a deep dive into understanding the science of uh, consciousness in acute brain injuries, something that we deal with every single day in the neuro ICU. But the other is really creating the curing coma community and recognizing that this is a deep dive scientific endeavor, but it's also much more than that. It's the sort of endeavor that anybody, people are ask, people asking me and Daiwa Olson, who's the co-chair of the Curing Coma Campaign, and others of this when we presented it at our kickoff at the 2019 Neurocritical Care Society meeting in Vancouver. They said, well, who do you need? Why, why would I, what would I have to offer the Curing Coma Campaign? And so the answer we gave is, if you are somebody who does MRI, diffusion tensor imaging research into the basic mechanisms of coma as it involves brainstem structures. Well, you're in the curing coma campaign. If you are a nurse that works at the bedside who is taking care of patients who have decreased level of consciousness and wants to provide them the best care, you are in the curing coma campaign. If you are a doctor who is asked to try to understand and predict outcome in order to advise patients, and especially their families, on the course of treatment and action we should take, you're in the curing coma campaign. If you are a trainee who's thinking about how am I going to make an impact over my career in neurocritical care as a physician, nurse, pharmacist, you're in the curing coma campaign. And so you see the theme here. I think really there's a place for everybody across these wide areas that span from the basic science all the way to implementation science. So how are we going to do this? Well, what we have is we have a structure for the Curing Coma campaign that's rolled out through the Neurocritical Care Society that includes a number of different modules that relate to engagement and our community of collaborators, developing an investigator toolkit. We have a scientific working group that is uh, uh, an advisory council that is already beginning work uh, to decide different aspects of prospective studies that might need to be done, as well as what's available in existing data sets. And we have two big projects 
that are uh, already uh, approved and rolled out in collaboration with the NIH. Uh, we're going to be having a curing coma workshop uh, that's a, a joint effort of the Neurocritical Care Society and the NIH at the NIH Nature Center on September 8th and 9th, uh, tw- uh, 2020. And this is fantastic. This is an opportunity for us to really think about what is the science and to set the agenda of science for coma and neurocritical care going forward. We also have the common data elements for coma. Common data elements are, are a way to speak uh, in research and really hopefully in clinical care in a very common way as the way we uh, assess, evaluate, and document um, uh, research and hopefully clinical care aspects in medical records and research records. Common data elements have been developed for traumatic brain injury and various types of stroke. And now we have approval to work with the NIH to go ahead and develop a set of common data elements for coma. And finally, I'm here to announce that uh, we're going to be having World Coma Day. We have not decided on a date yet, but this is going to be an opportunity for us to come together for both advocacy as well as considering a point prevalence study to look at the scope uh, of coma worldwide. And hopefully the idea is we would do this during the next summer of 2020 as a single day, and it would be something that would be a recurring day that would allow us to benchmark over time and build on this. So we have uh, a lot of work to do, but when the next time you go and take care of your patient at the bedside, and these issues come up, I think you'll recognize the importance of of addressing this grand challenge, the opportunity that's here, and how we really all can come together for our patients for this grand challenge. So, Dick, I hope you'll enjoy, I hope you'll join me in the Curing Coma campaign, and uh, I look forward to all of us working together on this. Well, Claude, thank you very much. I mean, it's it's an amazing effort that uh, uh, that's being proposed, and um, uh, I could suggest uh, Coma Day being on May the fourth, the Star Wars Day, May the fourth be with <laughs> you. You know, I I think uh, you know we're all going to need uh, you know some special help with this. It's a it's a really exciting endeavor. Thanks very much for uh, describing the project to our listeners. Absolutely, Good I look forward to to working with them on it. Thank you. Indira, I want to thank you very much for your time. And Sheila, um, thank, you. thank you really for, um, for, for coming back to us and everything and, you went through. And, and, and um, we're all looking forward to uh, Sheila 2.0. So thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you enjoy these interviews, please take a moment to rate and review this show on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe to Dick Moberg's Neural Network to receive notifications when future installments are available. And of course, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Moberg Research, Inc. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again soon.